I'd like you to turn to Second Thessalonians. That's where we're going to spend the, the first portion of the evening. The question is kind of two-parter. I'm going to reference a website got, uh, called gotquestions.org. On the surface, if someone were to say, do you suggest gotquestions.org? Is that a good place to get information? I'd say um, probably not. But if you want to see how things are framed, that's a good place to go. I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. The Bible says we don't need a man to teach us. We have the Holy Spirit. A lot of people understand what that's saying, but they misapply it. They say, well, I don't need to go to church then. I don't need to have a pastor. I don't need to have, you know, further my education with the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. What else do I need? While that is true, you need to align yourselves with teachers and pastors who teach what the Holy Spirit has already taught, and that's here in the Word. So as you find churches that are clear in the gospel that have a good understanding of end times, you know, what, what, what are we looking forward to? You should, you should ask yourselves, if I can go there and support that ministry and be a part of that body of Christ, I should. I, I strongly recommend that people go to Florida Bible College of Tampa here, not so that you can get accreditation. We don't offer that. Not so that you can uh, uh, get all of a sudden, you know, you can be validated, oh, he went to college. This is... This is learning how to read blueprints. It's learning how to understand when someone says they're an atheist, what do they mean by that? What things do they already accept as true? What things do they reject? And how can you as a Bible student use the word and rightly divide it to meet their need? If a person's lost, what's their need? They need the Savior. You've got to be able to point them to the Savior. I was just having lunch with uh, the Maloney's and we were talking about the differences between witnessing here in America and witnessing over in India. One of the things I'm going to lean on when I'm over there is I'm going to lean on the culture, the, the, the people who are natives to the culture, because there are things that I can say here in America. Oh, I hate that noise. <laughs> a, hate it. Hopefully that you know, doesn't mean everything's coming crashing down. Maybe just, is it an Amber Alert? Okay, well, we, we pray for that, for that child. Um, oh. I forgot. The natives. the natives. Thank you very much. Someone's paying attention. Thank you. <laughs> there are things that I can say here in America that all of a sudden would make sense here, but if I were to say them in India, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Burbal Budrum gave me a wonderful illustration of this when I was over there in Trinidad. He said, uh, me and Pastor Sam, he's talking about himself and his assistant pastor, when they go talk to a native Hindu and they make a statement about believe on Jesus Christ to know that you're going to heaven, they, they will readily accept that. They'll say, okay, that sounds good, but then they'll take that idea of Jesus and they'll put it next to their other gods. Now, that's a problem, okay? They'll say, yes, I, they may even tell you, I believe on Jesus, but they do not believe in what he did for them. They just believe that he's a God, and they put him next to the rest of their idols, a more American Hindu, you approach them with the gospel, they are probably not as devout as they would be in Trinidad or in a native country where Hinduism is, is popular. And so you may make a statement about Jesus Christ and ask them if that makes sense and if they'll put their trust in him. And they're trusting in him alone for their salvation. They're not trusting in him and other gods. Paul had this problem when he went uh, to uh, Athens and he was talking about all the, the unknown God. And he used what was accepted in the culture, 
to teach the truth. As a matter of fact, he even quoted a secular poet, which is quite interesting to be quoted in the Word of God. But he used what was available to him to reach people with the gospel. So when you say, like, what do you think about gotquestions.org? I, I wouldn't recommend it to build your theology, but I would recommend it to see how are other people defining what the Scripture says. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, you know, I just used this illustration the other day. Remy, she was walking around the kitchen, and we had just used the oven. The oven was closed. And, you know, the, the door of the oven is warm. She was wanting to put her little hand on there, and we said, no, can't do that. You know, she's not going to be the rest of her life. She can't go near an oven. She's not going to be 45 years old and say, I can't, I can't, we can't go near the oven. That's bad. But for where she is right now, it's dangerous. And what I mean by that illustration is, based on where you are in, in, in your knowledge of the Bible, it can do more harm than it can good. And that's why I give you a warning about gotquestions.org. But for something like what we're about to study, it's really helpful. Because it gives you the framework of someone who just throws a title out there and you're like, that could mean four different things. Literally could, this phrase that we're going to look at. But here's the question. It's a two-part question. What is the best way to respond to those who are not pre-trib, who do not believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in 2 Thessalonians, and by that belief are amillennial? Okay, so that's the first question. We need to define some terms. All right, What does it mean to be pre-trib? Pre-trib is short for pre-tribulational. There are three different positions that you can take, and then there's the fourth one called amillennial. Okay? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Okay? They all talk about the tribulation period, the seven years in which there's going to be tribulation on the earth split into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. But the pre-, mid-, and post refer to when is the rapture going to happen. And the rapture is the event that's next on the calendar, where the Lord is going to descend and not physically touch down on the earth, but he's going to descend with a shout, and all of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, who are part of this thing called the church, are going to be called up, and the church will be taken out, and there'll be a seven-year period of judgment upon the earth. At the end of that seven years, the Lord will come back at the second advent, the second coming, which is defined as him breaking through, every eye will see him in great power, and he will literally touch down on the Mount of Olives and split it, and there he will rule and reign in a physical, literal kingdom we call the millennium, or the thousand-year reign. So that defines pre, post, and mid. It's the timing of the rapture. So pre-trib would mean the rapture happens before the seven years, which is what we believe to be accurate from the Scripture. We base that off of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and also the title that we're called the Bride of Christ, the, the uh, mid-tribulational period says at the halfway mark, when the treaty is broken with the Antichrist, there'll be a peace treaty, and the, the temple is desecrated by the Antichrist, who's accepted as God at that point, then the church will be raptured out. And then post means right before the Lord comes back, then everybody will be raptured out, and then the Lord will come back. There's that fourth position, which is amillennial. This is very new. It's very attractive to younger thinkers, because it takes what the Bible says clearly, and it makes it an allegory. This is extremely dangerous. I don't know how many of you are, are up to date on this phrase called deconstruction, but uh, there, it's really popular in Hollywood, and it's really popular even on like small YouTube communities and things like that, where people basically, their belief, they, 
they say they're Christians. The validity of their faith, I can't know because I haven't asked them what they're trusting in to get to heaven. But let's just say they're believers. They fall away from the truth and then they deconstruct, meaning they kind of take this structure of Christianity and they start breaking it apart to where they say, I no longer believe what I used to believe. It's very attractive. Some Christian singers in the last three or four years have deconstructed their faith. And it's dangerous because what you, you end up seeing is you have people who we don't even know if they were saved or not. We just don't know because we don't know what they said about Jesus or the sufficiency of what Christ did for them. But what I think, what I see as a pattern is every single time they start to allegorize the book of Genesis. They start to say, well, if evolution is true, then there really is no Adam and Eve. That's just a story for us to kind of learn a lesson from. That's very dangerous. You see Adam and Eve now is kind of like a parable instead of historical fact. Well, the further you go down the line, what are you going to do with miracles? What are you going to do with the 10 plagues? Is that also an allegory? Yes, that's what they'll conclude. So then when you come to Jesus, who is first discussed in Genesis at the fall, the, the account of the fall, you get to Jesus and the fact that he's rising from the dead and you have to conclude, well, that's an allegory too. These are all just illustrations for how I can live a better life and be a better human being. So it's kind of like this, this ink that spills on cloth and very quickly it, it, it begins to drench the entire cloth with the color. And before you know it, the cloth is completely changed. That's what amillennialist is. It says there is no physical reign. There is no um, kingdom that we're looking for the Lord to establish. It's, all it's a spiritual kingdom. You'll hear people use the language, and it's half correct. It's mostly incorrect, but they'll say they're a kingdom builder. What they really mean by that, whether they know it or not, is that they're building the world to a point where it's acceptable for Christ to come back. Now, the Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible says that things will wax, which means grow, worse and worse. I don't understand how we can look at the position of an amillennialist and say that the Lord is reigning now, and we're trying to prepare for him to come back to create the new heaven and the new earth, unless you take the whole book of Revelation and say it's an allegory. It's just an example of war. It's just an example of uh, you know, people shedding blood, or every time there's a famine, or there's contaminated water, um, well, this is the result of the things that were in the book of Revelation. I heard recently with, when they were going around about all the microplastics that are in water that we're discovering and things like that, people are saying this is the fulfillment of prophecy in Revelation. No, it's not. It can't be. Because Revelation is very specific in the amount of water and the fact that it'll be on certain coasts. There's cities that are mentioned. There's real leaders that are mentioned. All sorts of things are very specific in Revelation because it's going to be a sign for those who are a part of the body of Christ to not abandon their faith in the light of the persecution that they will face. It's very clear, but if you're allegorizing things from Genesis, why not allegorize things from Revelation? It's just a story. Think of the equivalent of a bedtime story, right? Humpty Dumpty really didn't fall off of a wall. Okay, we're not looking for a real king called Humpty Dumpty to see if he existed. It's an illustration. There are no three pigs. There is no big bad wolf. Their illustrations. People start looking at the Bible that way. It's extremely dangerous because now everything is up to interpretation. Let's go back to that three little pigs and the big bad wolf. You interpret that differently than I do. 
I may find some t- facet of that story that's unique to me. It's a relative truth to me, and you find a relative truth to you. Well, where's the absolute truth? The Bible says this is the absolute truth. This word will never pass away. And when we, all, when we just take it as a blanket statement and go, this is all symbolism. It's just an allegory. It takes away the authority of the word. And that, that, that's what's dangerous. So the first part of this question is, what is the best way to respond to those who are not pre-trib, you know what that is now, who do not believe the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period? And they hinge on the fact that the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at that. That's a very loaded question. I want you to look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. Paul, his first statement here is, do not be deceived. This is his second letter to Thessalonica, a very compassionate city. They loved the apostles. They received them as ones who carried the word of God. But they were being deceived. What was the deception? You missed it. You missed it. The Lord's already come. That's why he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, lest this happen first, you are children of the day and not of the night. There was a separation there. Well, he finished that letter in, in, in five chapters, and now here he's writing another one, and he's warning them again, do not be deceived. It is healthy. I'm telling you this. It is healthy to be a skeptic when you're listening to the word of God being interpreted. It's, that's healthy. That doesn't mean you challenge God's authority, but you do make sure, is this man giving us the truth? You can't just accept him because sounds good, is loving, funny, all that kind of stuff, extremely handsome in my case. Just kidding. But you may, you may say, and people get swindled by that. They're like, oh, look at all of the things that they have. Look at the size of their ministry. Surely they're doing something right. That could actually be a sign that they're wrong. The ultimate test is not by the size of their building. It's by the, the words. That's the fruit in Matthew 7. When you want to test a man by whether he's from God or not, you test him by what he says. That, that's the test. Not by his works, because works can deceive. <clears throat> Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. If you're making notes here, the first note I want you to see is that day shall not come. This is probably referring to the second coming of the Lord, not the rapture necessarily, probably referring to the second coming of the Lord because it says there's going to be a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. The end of the tribulation period, when the Lord comes back, he's going to fight against the Antichrist and the world's powers and systems at that time. By the way, I don't know how many of you are paying attention to artificial intelligence, but whoa, that came on the scene a year ago and it is in everything. I use Adobe Acrobat, I have an AI button now. I use Microsoft Office, I have an AI button now. Meaning, in the programming, I can click a button and it will read what I've already written. They're already, they're already, they're already looking at what I'm saying. You know how easy it would be for me to write a gospel article in my Word document and be shut out because I, I have hate speech according to the terms and conditions and the privacy of my own computer? Better get your script back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Better get back to pen and paper. I've even thought seriously about making sure that I have a copy of my notes printed out so I'm not trusting in this thing because all of a sudden, AT&T turns the data off and I can't see my notes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got to know the word, you know, and all, the, all those different things. But boy, it's, it's interesting. 
But first of all, we see a falling away, and there's a lot of contention on that. What, what, what is the falling away? Is it the falling away from doctrine? Is it the falling away of the body of Christ? Or is it the removal of the Holy Spirit? I say it's the last one because of what we're going to see here in the, script, in, in the Scripture. And that man of sin be revealed. That man of sin, that's the Antichrist, who I think is born already and is being prepared. Keep your eyes on that prince in Saudi Arabia. That is an interesting study. Some of the things that he's saying about the temple and Israel's right to Mount Moriah, <laughs> stuff where it's like, really? A Muslim is saying this. It's not our holiest site. <laughs> exciting. It's only exciting if you know where you're going when you die. Amen? It's only exciting if you're looking for Jesus. Who, um, now we have more about this son of, uh, this uh, man of sin in verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So there's going to be no doubt the Antichrist is going to make a statement similar to, I am capital G God. He will sit in that third temple. He will desecrate some type of pagan sacrifice. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you. Now when, when was Paul yet with them? In the first letter, when he wrote with them. I told you these things. He's reminding them. He's not scolding them. He's not calling them dumb. He's saying, I told you these things. Now verse 6 is very important. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. What withholdeth, I believe, is the operation of the Holy Spirit, and he that is revealed is that man of sin. So verse 7 makes more sense with that interpretation. The mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let. Now that's a different word than what we understand today. Let is like, let him in. Before it was kind of like the word suffer. We, we, we would not allow that. So that him that is restraining will restrain until he be taken out of the way. Now, in my, in my understanding of the scripture here, I take that phrase, until he be taken out of the way, and I tie it back to, um, except there come a falling away first. So I think the removal of the church at the rapture will also coincide with the revelation of the man of sin. So that's why I'm pre-trib. If the man of sin is going to be on the scene for seven years deceiving... And the rapture, excuse me, the Holy Spirit is what is restraining him from coming onto the scene in power now. When the Holy Spirit is taken out, so will we be taken out. And then that period will go. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us that every believer in this age is sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when you walked in today, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that what he did on the cross, the shedding of his blood, his burial and resurrection... As the Son of God, He paid for your sin. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You brought in all of the Holy Spirit. Amen? <clears throat> I heard a great message by Curtis Hudson that was just really good about that whole point. But if we, if we are all here today, born-again Christians, you have the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what quality your spiritual life is right now, that is a seal. That's God's seal on you. That Holy Spirit also has another role. He is restraining from the world getting to the point where it could. And when the rapture happens, I believe before the tribulation, he's taken out because the church is taken out. And the wickedness that we see here is on a very small degree. I don't know how many of you read about the, the young girl, I think her name is Lakin, Lakin Riley, I think, that was bludgeoned to death on the campus of the University of Georgia. 
in Athens? That's, to me, 22-year-old girl. That's evil. That's wicked. It will be like that and worse in the tribulation period. I don't think man will have restraint. It'll be like in the days of Noah that we see where they kind of just did whatever they wanted. Whenever we hear about something that tragic, it's usually on only what we hear, right? There's so many other things that happen that we never hear about. I think it'll be worse because the Holy Spirit will be removed and that man of sin is going to rule and reign. And he will be given power. And that power will be significant. So the question is, what is the best way to respond to those who don't believe that the rapture is in the beginning and um, they believe maybe it's in the middle or the end? I think that my first question would be, for who is the tribulation period? Who is that for? Okay, Is it for the church or is it for Israel's rejection of the Messiah? And it all hinges on Daniel chapter 9. We have, a, we have, and I'm not shamelessly plugging the channel here, I'm just telling you what it is. We, I, I do a series every summer. Those of you who have been coming for a while, you know that. I do prophecy in the summers. And the first one we did was called uh, Keep Looking Up. And we went through details, verse by verse, of Daniel chapter 9. And there's a period of Daniel chapter 9 that's yet to be fulfilled that is what we see as the tribulation period in which all those things that are listed will be uh, fulfilled in the tribulation period. And what's interesting is the church is not anywhere in there. I believe at this time when we get raptured out, a couple things are happening. The judgment seat of Christ. We're finding out how we're going to serve the Lord. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where it's great rejoicing according to Revelation 19. And then the last one is humorous, but you get fitted for a robe and assigned a horse. And you come back with the Lord. And then you rule and reign with him based on the quality of your faith here. That's why I think it's so significant that we, uh, significant that we don't just waste away this life. There is great purpose and value to what you're doing here for the Lord. You can't see it yet. We can see the little details. How many of you have actually, you've led somebody to Christ? You've, you've walked them through the gospel and seen them trust Christ. Would you raise your hand and let me know? Really, there's no feeling like it. There's no feeling like getting somebody to understand that what they are believing is getting them to heaven is not sufficient, but there's a solution. And that solution is, is, is in Jesus. And most of the time the reaction is, wow. <laughs> the one I hear all the time is, I've never really understood that. Yeah, you've never understood it because it's not, it's not the prevalent message that's being taught in the day. But that would be my first question is, who do they think the tribulation period is for? And what, who would they say is the one that is letting in verse 7? I think verse 7, the letting there is the Holy Spirit through the church. We're born again into this body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says we're all baptized into one body. And by that belief, our amillennium, I'm just going to read this here for a moment. Um, amillennium is one of four views of the end times regarding the thousand-year reign of Christ. Each of the four views differs in placement or the timing or the thousand-year reign mentioned in Revelation 20. An amillennialist sees the thousand years as spiritual and non-literal as opposed to a physical understanding of history. And so what would you say to somebody who believes that? You just ask questions. And it's not wrong to ask questions. Some people think that's a logical fallacy. Jesus did that, <laughs> especially uh, with people that were trying to trap him. He answered with a question. Today, in modern rabbinical training, the question answered with a question is common. Because the, way, the reason why you do that, answer a question with a question, is because you're 
you're trying to argue from something that's already clearly said. But you can ask a question to somebody who says that and say, what do you think the significance of Jesus touching down on the Mount of Olives is? What's the significance of that? You can take them to Zechariah 14 and talk about why will there be nations that will, come, that will refuse to come up to Jerusalem and therefore the Lord will withhold rain from their um, countries until they do. What's the significance of that? When the devil is loosed for a season, where is he loosed? Is it a metaphysical thing? Is it physical? I think it's, a, I think it's physicality. I think that we're going to rule and reign with the Lord here on the earth, and we're looking for that literal return. So that's, that's the answer to the first question there. I hope that makes sense. If I keep going, we won't have any time. But really, it's, it's, it's a really good study. Another place of reference, I get confused exactly where it is because I know it's in John's Gospel, and I want to say it's in John. Yeah, just write this as a reference. John 16, 7 through 11. John chapter 16, 7 through 11 talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in the world now. He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I think when that Holy Spirit is gone, which would be the exit of the church, you have all that wickedness that will prevail. All right, any other questions? I have some preloaded ones, but I'd love to get yours if you have them. Jose. So I brought my mom and my grandma here today. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could explain the necessity of Christ to go to heaven. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 3, shall we? And we'll look at, this is on page 1194. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, is a description of man from Paul. Paul's the writer of Romans. He is a Jew. And he's describing the condition of the whole world. Verse 9 says that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. Why are these two major categories that the Bible um, distincts, or makes a distinction? It's because that is how the Jew would read it. The Jew understands that as, as a Jewish person, they're part of God's chosen people, Israel. So they look at everybody else as less than, okay? What Paul is saying is we all are less than in the scope of God's righteousness. In verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps, or snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. So here we are in this condition I'll talk about the lost man. The lost man is in the, con- uh, the, the condition of conviction. The condemnation is God, uh, uh, excuse me, of God is already on him. There's no question about we're waiting to the point where he gets to some sin that he commits where now that condemnation is on him. This is already declared who he is. He's a sinner. He's fallen short. 
there's nothing good in him. That's not to say there's nothing good on a man-to-man relation, but between man and God, the righteousness that is required is perfection, and we all fall short. If we compare ourselves to one another, surely we'll have one better than another. But if we compare ourselves to the perfection of God, we all fall short. Everybody is condemned so that there's nobody who can use this as an advocate for themselves. But, 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 I, 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 what about me? Exemption, whatever it may be. Nope, guilty. That's the problem. We're all sinners. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. There's no amount of doing in any law, whether it's the holy law that is in the, the Ten Commandments or in the 613 other ones, um, or any kind of other world structure, uh, excuse me, world religion structure. There's nothing that we could do to justify ourselves. I want you to focus on that word. There shall no flesh be justified in his sight by the law is the knowledge of sin. Because the law exists and we break it, we have the knowledge of sin, therefore we are accountable for it. Every mouth is closed. Nobody can make a defense for themselves. That word in verse 21 is very important, but now, this is a pivot. The man who is condemned now has hope in something, in a person, and it's not himself. But now the righteousness of God without the law, is manifested. That word means made known. It's declared. You mean the righteousness of God has been made known? Yes. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the significance of Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's what happens if we say Jesus plus ourselves. We say the blood of Christ, the significance of Christ, plus my good works is like a concoction that we mix together, offer to God and say, justify me on this grounds. But we know based on what we just read, anything that we add, turning, starting, stopping, religion, anything that we add is condemned. This is like the water that I have here, filling it all the way up to the top in perfect, and I take one drop of poison and put it in there, mix it up and give it to my one-year-old daughter. That's, that would, that, I should go to jail. That would be harmful for her. That's the equivalent of us adding our own works. We say, yes, the sufficiency of Christ, but my good works, I stop doing this, I turn from this, whatever it may be. We need the full righteousness of God revealed and the full righteousness of God applied to our account. Look at what this says. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is... So what is the righteousness of God that was revealed? to the law and the prophets, and now made known to us here today at Calvary Community Church. It's revealed by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. That's the significance of Jesus Christ. That's the necessity so that you can believe on his finished work and get the righteousness of God put to your account. Your good works are not there. Your good works have condemned you. You've fallen short. Now, I want you to look at these, these uh, five words here. For there is no difference. It doesn't matter what you came in here believing or what you've been taught or what you've experienced. The solution is the same. Faith in Jesus Christ, belief in Jesus Christ equals the attained righteousness of God, which is justification. Uh, continue on into verse three. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, meaning God has decided to justify 
as an act of grace, freely, free of charge to the, to the condemned. He's chosen to justify them freely. Look at the rest of the verse. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's no formulaic religion here. There's no do this and don't do this. The only instruction is receive Jesus, which is to believe on him, and you receive the righteousness of God. What's the purpose? Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That word literally means the substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus hung in our place. And that is the grace of God, freely given, cost him his life, but he offered it to us. And the response to receive salvation immediately and eternally is belief on him. Who God hath set forth to be the substitute, propitiation, through faith in his blood. The atoning element of the cross is the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. That blood has been shed. It has been accepted. And God is waiting. He's waiting to give that to you. You receive it by belief. The moment that you do, he applies it to your account. You're justified. The sin is taken care of. To declare, verse 25, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be the just, excuse me, might be just and the justifier of, and here's the subject, of him which believeth in Jesus. So it's not religion. It's not any other form of uh, religious worship or structure or doing works. Salvation and redemption is attained by faith in Jesus Christ, which is, a, which is offered to us freely. Verse 27, Paul continues, where is boasting then? What is boasting? That is lifting oneself up. Well, I did this and I did not do that. Therefore, I have earned it. Some people say, well, I'm a Mormon. Well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Well, I'm... That's boasting. There's, none, there's no place for it. How about, uh, it says it is excluded. By what law, what rules are followed to inherit eternal life? Of works? Nay. There's not a horse that just busted in on the scene here. That means no. It's not by works of the law, but by the law of faith. I don't mean that thinks there, I, I don't think that means there's a literal faith law, but it's a comparison. The law condemns faith in Christ, forgiveness, justification. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Look in chapter 4, in verse 5. Well, verse 1, we have, we have to look at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, now we're talking to the Jews again, our father, as pertaining the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, this justification has to be talking about his sin debt. If that were possible, he hath were of the glory, but not before God. Why? Because God cannot accept his works. Verse 27 of chapter 3, by works, no. By law of faith, nay. By the faith of Jesus, or excuse me, uh, by the law of works, no. But by the law of faith, which is in Jesus Christ. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed, just as it is said in Romans 3, he believed God and it was counted. That word is called imputed. Put to, unto him for what? 
righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You can try to work for your salvation. It's a choice you can make. You won't ever attain it. You can't attain it. The mouth is going to be stopped. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, of whom, that's me, that's you, his faith is imputed or counted for righteousness. That's what I would say the significance of Jesus is. The significance of Jesus is he is my sacrifice. He's the one who died in my place so that I could be brought into the family of God. And more importantly, if we just remove the family of God part, in God's courtroom, I am innocent. I have been justified. There's no record that's sealed and put away. It's all paid by the blood of Jesus. That's done. I don't have to worry about that. That's the significance of Christ. I can't come in there with my own list of good works, put them before the court, and have a trial. I'll be found guilty. James talks about the sin of omission, which I think people just forget. Well, I don't do this and I don't do that. Well, what about the things you should do, but you don't? You can almost see people blow a fuse because they realize the sin of omission exists. When you, when you say you're going to pray for someone and you don't, that is sin. That is sin. And to say, well, it's not that bad. Really? I had good intentions. Talk to King Saul about good intentions. Well, you were running late, Samuel, and the people, and also I did the sacrifices. The kingdom is removed from you this day. So much for good intentions. We don't need a plan to follow. We need a Savior. Amen. And that's the significance of Christ. I hope that answers your, your question, Jose. We got about 11 minutes. Any other questions? James, the honorable. <laughs> Somebody caught that. It was you, Ashley. You caught that. And I was like, wow, that really stuck. <laughs> Trent can be my bailiff. All right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead, James. <laughs> I had a, a family member of mine asking about, like, in the, in the Old Testament, just like, along the lines of like God can't be a loving God mm-hmm. because like when when the Jews or when the Israelites were like conquering Canaan he would tell them to like kill yeah. all all of the all of certain tribes or certain people mm-hmm. and so he would say like that's genocide and so I tried to explain that it's um it's kind of like when you're raising your children you don't want them around people that are going to be bad influences and obviously even then, they, the Israelites still figured out ways to um, be among the, among the people and let them affect them. And it was a constant problem right. throughout their, their entire post-exile existence. Well, well is, is there a better way to explain that? Or The way that I... So usually when people will bring that question, which is basically to summarize what James said, how can God be so loving and merciful when he instructed... It's basically Joshua to go in and do what Moses should have done um, but was unable to do because of his uh, unbelief, how could that be a loving God? Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't the opportunity be to go in there and, and teach the gospel or something like that? Well, I, I fall on two things. First of all, if you read Joshua, it's very violent. It's extremely violent. As a matter of fact, what's going on between Israel and Gaza is there, there's things recorded in Joshua about that. It was the one area that they could not get. They tried and, and they, they received pushback. 
the thing that I, that I try to get people to lean on is God knows much better than we do. And there's a significance to the, to the religious practices that were going on in these places. Every single one of them involved brutal child sacrifice. And the reason why that I believe that God did not want Israel to be under that influence is because he knew the weakness of Israel for other gods. They had a major problem with it in Egypt. It was the first thing that they did when they came off of Mount Sinai. Now there's something you can do with this information. This is just what I tell people and sometimes they don't like it, but it, it proves to be, it, it gets the job done. I say, are we going to go put ourselves in the position of the judge of God? Are we going to put ourselves on the throne and put God on the stand? When Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I believe there was significance to Joshua's conquest. It must have been that way. And the reason why I know it had to be that way is because it was the very thing that caused Israel to go into Babylonian captivity. They chased after other gods. Their, Israel's prophets were false prophets. In the temple, there were women who existed for the sole purpose of satisfying the needs of men, bringing about children, birthing those children, and then offering them to either Molech, Molech or Chemosh or Ashtaroth big you know big gods of the cultures around them but they're false gods so i believe as the land is going in which god has decreed is the land for israel it had to be completely wiped of that gaza was not wiped it was not completely conquered and it became a major point of false doctrine coming in you study assyria um amalek all of these different uh, uh, problems that Israel had. The battle of Ai, where, uh, what's his name, Achan, because he hid the thing that he was not supposed to take. He stole it and hid it in his tent, and I think it was like 30-something men died. And that was the first time that they had experienced um, a loss to that degree. It required Achan's life, and I believe the life of his family. That's a major punishment. You say, well, that's cruel. Well, that's how serious sin is. I, th I think that's how we have to look at it because we already know what would happen if those cultures were allowed to exist right next to Israel. They fell right in. They fell right in line. And, and that's, that's a purpose why they were sacked and taken by Babylon and we have all that instruction. But I always just tell people, just be careful what position you're putting God in. There was a lady who came to this church for 20 years and she was in judgment of God for 20 years, heard the gospel, for all the time that she was here, and I think it was 2021 or 2022 maybe, she came into my office with her husband and we had a conversation and one of the things she could not get over was moral evil. She was like, how could God let an innocent child be brutally murdered or even like raped and, and tortured and stuff? How could that happen? And I gave her a satisfactory scripture answer, which is this is the heart of man, not the heart of God. But I also said very plainly, I said, are you putting yourself on the, on, in, in, in the role of the judge and God on, on trial? Are we saying there's sin in him? And that's what convinced her to think, maybe there are things that I don't understand. And then I showed her Romans. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. For all those aborted children, and that's so, that's so close to home for me as an adoptive father, that is... I wish I had the ability to take 
every child that was aborted. But it is not my responsibility to get vengeance. I know that the Lord will. And I also know he has offered his son to pay for those sins. And so I have to look at it through that lens. But I would ask those, those line of questions. I'd say, you know, are we really in a position to judge God's intentions? And then I would ask, do you know the history, the, the, uh, the history of Israel and false idols? Because it, it directly stems from those nations. That would be what I'd say there. Hopefully that's sufficient for you. Thank you for asking that. Any others? We got about five minutes. Do we have one online question? Yeah, yeah let's see. In the crowd. Anybody in the crowd? No? All right, Someone I'll said, when is this going to be over? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right, if, I, hopefully it's not a loaded one. No, I'm going to go like, first come, first serve. Okay. It's an easy one. Uh, this is from Stephen Whitehouse. Stephen just um, got back to his home there. He says, what do you say about those who say that you can cause yourself to lose your salvation? I've asked this before, but wanted the church to hear this question. Okay. That's pretty much the, the you'll, you'll hear this called the free will Baptist or Arminianism where they say, if salvation is free to receive, you can also freely leave it. I would, I would point you to, uh, let's go there now, 2 Timothy chapter 2. There's a lot of verses that we could use, like 1 John 5.13, the significance of eternal life. But I think 2 Timothy gives us a really good insight on the person who uh, falls into unbelief after they've believed on Jesus and the payment for sin has been applied to their account. There's a description of them here. It starts in verse 11, 2 Timothy 2, page 1280. Therefore I endure, excuse me, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. This talks about the new nature of the believer. Christ has died, he has risen, so therefore we will rise one day. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. This is the significance of experiencing persecution here as we walk in our new nature, as we love the Lord and obey him, we will have an opportunity to reign more closely with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. I do not believe that is talking about salvation because of the next verse. If we believe not, which what does it mean to believe not? It's the heart of unbelief. We just talked about that this morning. Yet he abideth faithful. Who is the one who abides faithful? It's, it's Christ in whom we are placed in. And it says this very clearly, he cannot deny himself. So there's no way that Jesus could look at you and say that you are, or excuse me, that God the Father could look at you and say, um, no more condemnation, pass from death unto life, and then you would be able to take yourself out to where Jesus would look at you and give you the Matthew 7 treatment, which is, I never knew you. That would be a lie. He did know you. He cannot deny himself. This is also the significance of the teaching of the body of Christ. We're placed into one body, many members. There is no amputation in the body. There is no cutting off. Okay, There is treatment, but there's no removal. And the last thing I'll show you is in John chapter 10. Because this is significant from, from Christ himself. John chapter 10. And th that'll be the last question that we take. But I'll tell you a personal story about this, this, uh, this, these, these two verses here. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, really thought I had to turn from my sin to be saved. 
My uncle sat me down when I was 12 years old and he explained to me the significance of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency that's found in Christ, and I just have to believe on him, and I did. And ever since I was 12 years old, I was born again into the family of God. However, however, and I want to be real clear about this, I did not go to a church that was clear, so I wrestled with the permanence of my salvation. I don't think that means that I wasn't saved. I do believe that means I was under false teaching and it was robbing me from my joy. We used to go to my grandma's house. She died in 2004 of colon cancer, a couple of years after my mom died of stage four leukemia. But I remember we would go to my grandma's house in a little trailer off of uh, Gar- Gardner Road off of Sheldon. And I remember we'd go there and we'd have pasta. And I, I'm sorry, you have it 52 times a year, you're sick of it. I don't, I don't like it. I just remember not being in a good mood because we're going over to grandma's house. We used to call her Birdie. And we used to go over there and just, you know, I'd be like, I don't want to have this and all that. But I was really struggling that day because I thought, I'm going to go to hell. I have to keep turning from something and I can't stop doing wrong. I can't, I am beside myself sitting on the little marble steps of that double wide. And I remember my grandmother coming out, sitting next to me very clearly. I can smell what was going on that day. And she showed me these verses and the significance of these verses. Look at what it says, John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The illustration is, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. If this guitar pick is us, Faith in Christ results being placed in him. We are secured in the Father's hand. And it says so very clearly, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Well, I'm a man. I can't unplucketh, you know, like you can't do that. And I remember thinking, I'm telling you, I remember realizing this. I can't mess this up. The one word came to my mind, secured. I could almost see like it was the great big bank vault of a video game that I used to play. And it was just like, boom, shutting and no one could open it. And I realized that day, I'm secured in Christ. Then verse 29, my father, if I let this hand represent the father, which gave them me, he's greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Double security, double secure, double big fat safe door sealed. It's, I'm, the, Jesus would have to fail and then God would have to fail. And then I'd have to take the Holy Spirit to hell with me because he's the seal that I have to the day of redemption. None of that is happening. It's not possible. You, really, you know how much relief I had? That's what I would say to free will Baptists that think you can take yourself out. Are you greater than the promise here in John 28 through 30? Because if you are, maybe you should think about that. <laughs> Maybe you should think about that statement. All right, you can close your Bibles. I hope that has been helpful. Good questions. Next month, same thing. It'll be a little more laid back, um, but I really do encourage you to send questions in. I've been saying you can write them in, but I'll be honest with you, it's a miracle that I have this. I looked for this all week. Dana gave it to me last week. This was Dana's question. It was under my keyboard. And when, I opened, and when I saw it, I saw another sticky note from like three years ago. I didn't even know that I had, and I was like, oh, that'd be good. Uh, but really, email your questions. 
questions at BibleLineMinistries.org and just put live Q&A. This is, is, is trusting me to put it into a notes thing or something like that. But I pray these are helpful for you. You can understand the Word of God. It's, it's written on a level t- for where there's supposed to be understanding. The Word of God is not, is not written to be confusing. God is not trying to play gotcha out here and deceive you. The devil is trying to do that. And where you want to see the devil at work is in, he's in ministries. He is in ministries. He's doing his thing out in the world, but he's in ministries too, folks. I've seen some people say some things that just knock me down. And I've been hearing it for a long time. I say, how did they get to that conclusion? Marvel not. Marvel not that uh, Satan can appear as a minister of light. But if you're here and you don't know you're going to heaven, I want you to have that assurance if this hand represents you and me, this block of sin represents sin, I put it on top of my hand because for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. We just saw that in Romans chapter 3. God loves us very much, hates sin because it separates us from Him. You have to be perfect to get to heaven, but we all fall short. Every mouth will be stopped. And people say, well, what about the good works that I did, the religion that I was tied to, the intent that I had to do good? Well, that's good works on man's standard, but the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die to pay for this sin. And if you die in this condition without the payment uh, that Jesus Christ made being applied to your account, you'll be separated forever from God in a literal fire burning hell. That's nothing to joke about. That's nothing to figure I need to figure it out. You know you're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. Why wait and delay when we are not promised the next day? This sin separates us from God. We cannot pay it off. It's not a you know snowball Dave Ramsey thing. You can't do it somebody's got to die for this sin. This hand represents the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. What he did on the cross is he shed his blood to pay for this sin. He cried out, it is finished. He was buried and he rose again three days later. And the promise is, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Doesn't mean you won't experience physical death, but it means you won't experience uh, experience spiritual separation from God in hell should not perish, but have, there's, there's a trade-off there, you have everlasting life. Life that lasts forever. That's because we're found in Him. Well, how do I get that? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John 10, 28 now applies to you. I, Jesus, gives to you who have believed eternal life. You'll never perish You'll never be plucked out of the Father's hand. That means that this sin won't be slapped on you again judicially where you're condemned and in need of justification. The law of double, you know, double jeopardy still applies. <laughs> you can't be brought up on what's already been ruled. You put your trust in Jesus, this has been paid for. And you now have a brand new nature, a brand new outlook on life. And whatever happens between now and the day of your death, you're going to heaven. And we're looking for the Lord's soon return. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads are bowed, nice or closed. Nobody's looking around. If you're here this, this evening and you say, Pastor, that makes sense to me. Uh, I, I, I know that I'm going to heaven now. I have changed my mind and put my trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. I'll ask a moment here for a raised hand. Raising of the hand does not save you. It just lets me know that you put your trust in Jesus tonight, and I'd like to pray for you. Anyone before we close? As heads are bowed and eyes are still closed, I hope nights like tonight where we kind of just have a very 
relaxed conversation about the word. I hope these are these are fun for you because they they're they're dissecting the word. And if this is something where you say, Pastor, it's hard for me to follow these things, it's I'm I'm having difficulty. Well, the solution I would say is read the word. And read it with a pencil and paper. Write down questions. Ask me, not because I'm the big Bible guru, but because I'm studying the same word that you are, and I have the, whole, the same Holy Spirit that you do, and I want to help. But I pray this is encouraging to you. If you've got friends who are struggling with questions, make sure you just talk to them and say, hey, you know, my pastor does a question and answer. Do you have any questions for him? I can get you an answer, and I think that would be good. But let us also rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Amen? Let us rest in Him. Father, thank You for a night like tonight. We pray for the little kiddos back there in Awana. Bring us back here safely for our prayer meeting on Wednesday. In the precious name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.